Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm Dominic Monkhouse and today I'm talking to Nigel Bennett. Nigel is an entrepreneur, but unlike many entrepreneurs, he decided not to sell his business. He decided to keep it and use it as a platform for good. He set up a couple of charities, one with his kids. We talk about that. He also set some life goals with his business coach, Kevin Lawrence, who's previous guest on the show. And one of them was to take a year off with his family. And so he talks about how he set the business up. And we talk a little bit about his year off. And he's written a book about his entrepreneurial journey and his year off called Take the Leap, Risking It All for What Really Matters. And I think it's finding what really matters to him. And that's using the business, his business as a platform for good. We talk about some of the accidents along the way, like being dragged to an EO meeting. And we talk about how he had an epiphany in the jungle in the Amazon. Absolutely fantastic conversation. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Hi, I'm Nigel Bennett. I'm founder of AquaGuard Spill Response. Um, what my company does is we design and manufacture state-of-the-art oil spill response equipment for the marine environment. And we've been involved in pretty much every major marine oil spill on the planet uh, since the Esson Valdez, which was in 1989. How do you end up in such a niche? I, um, I actually worked for my father's environmental mapping company for 10 years, right out of high school. I was, uh, so my first gig with him was down in um, Venezuela. So the day after my graduation from high school, I was 18 years old. I had a bit of a hangover from the big party the night before, and I was in a plane headed south to Venezuela uh, where I was in, you know, flying in helicopters and fixed wing aircraft. And I was taking photographs of the coastline mapping for sensitivities for oil spills. You know, the first couple of days I was down there, we were getting shot at by uh, FARC gorillas, the gorillas that <laughs> that are between the Colombian and, and Venezuelan border. They're actually still active today. They're still blowing up pipelines. Um, so that was a rude awakening. And um, so that took me to oh, probably 10 or 11 countries in 10 years where I was doing this. I was in uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, Brazil, Venezuela, and I, I had a long stint in Egypt uh, for about five years on and off. And... The one thing that I really noticed in Egypt is I did a helicopter flight over the Sinai Peninsula with a ex-American uh, Vietnam pilot, and his name was Johnny, and uh, he was a big fella. And he took me up over the Sinai, and he showed me some of this horrific environmental degradation. There was pipeline after pipeline after pipeline that had been ruptured, and oil was flowing into the Red Sea, literally in rivers. And I, I was just like, oh, my God, like, what is going on here? And I saw the same thing in Venezuela on Lake Maracaibo, where I was over Lake Maracaibo. And he said to me, he said, you know, I know you're doing this environmental mapping thing and all that. And, you know, I know you want to, you're taking this data back and I don't know what you're going to do with it. But I really don't think you're going to make a difference. 
look at it out here. Nobody cares. You know, it's people in Cairo, three, 400 miles away. They can barely feed themselves. Why do they care about what's happening in the Red Sea? Why do the Venezuelans care what's happening in Lake Maracaibo? And he said, I really don't think you can make a difference. So at that point in time, I was like, you know, my early 20s at, at this point. And I'm like, damn it, I can make a difference. What are you talking about? So my father was thrown in, in prison in, in Egypt. And I actually had to escape the country during this period. There's a whole story. I write about this in my book. But I got back to Vancouver in Canada where I, where I live. And I actually broke off of my father's company and I formed Aquaguard Spa Response. So we were designing and manufacturing equipment for these clients in these countries that I, I'd got to know over 10 years that needed help. They didn't have anybody providing this, this equipment or technology. So I went to the British Columbia Institute of Technology and I grabbed another guy that was working for my father's company and we left along with my sister and we formed this little company, Aquaguard. And we started providing this equipment all over the planet. And now we're in about a hundred and, well, I'll say 104 countries. Actually added up to 104, probably a couple more than that now. But we don't have offices there in all these countries, but we've done business in all these different countries. And we provided a lot of equipment for the BP Horizon oil spill disaster in the Gulf of Mexico. You know, that's where I am now with my business. Yeah, that's, that's kind of who I am. So you created an entirely new category, oil spill response. Are you the biggest company in your category? No, no. We have competitors in the UK. We have competitors in, in Denmark and, you know, a couple of in the US. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I really, I really enjoy it. And, uh, you know, I've been doing it for almost 30 years now, if you include the mapping. But it's, when you talk about it, it sounds like it's very rewarding. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really is. Yeah, it's really re rewarding. And, um it's really rewarding and I've had a lot of fun doing it as well. I mean, we've had our ups and downs like any business. I, you know, I, it got to a point where we were growing so fast and I, you know, I really didn't know where to turn. I was actually dragged into a group called the Young Entrepreneurs Organization, which was YEO, which is now called the Entrepreneurs Organization by a, a friend of mine, which was a 300 pound um, lineman from a Canadian football team. You know, he just retired from professional football and he literally grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and he said, you need help, man. <laughs> you need to join this organization called the Entrepreneurs Organization. I'm like, there's no way I have time for that. I have a young family and I've got a business. And he literally grabbed me and took me to a meeting and I became a member. And uh, that was probably one of the best things I ever did ever was join this peer group which is, the, for me, it was the Entrepreneurs Organization. There's also YPO, which is Young Presidents Organization. There's, there's, there's chapters in every city in the world. And my wife and I talk about it all the time. And that was probably one of the biggest or the best decisions we ever made was joining. Letting somebody persuade you that this was a good idea. Yeah. Unbelievable. But I can't, how long was your dad in prison for in Egypt? <laughs> you, can't, you can't you can't just leave us leave a storyline there and i'd been working in egypt on and off for five years and that was in the mid 80s and um we were mapping mapping the country and i was flying in helicopters and looking at broken pipelines everywhere and then our contract had come to an end and we had a uh an apartment in alexandria and i was going to meet him in cairo and the project was done and i had a phone call and, you know, your father's missing. I'm like, okay, fine. So I ended up driving uh, with our, we had a taxi driver, which was our, our guy. Uh, we just hired the same taxi for years. 
And uh, I drove this whole broken down road, you know, around um, camels and, and broken down trucks in the middle of the night and got to this hotel and, and found that my father had, you know, been missing this. This guy grabbed me, pulled me into a room. I sat on the floor in this room for, you know, seven hours in the dark. And uh, there was a phone call on the desk across the room and it was him calling from prison. And he gave me a code and he said, take the next bus and stay with Mike. And I'm like, what does that mean? So we hung up the phone. He hung up. And then I, I sat back on the floor with this other guy, which was actually one of our people. And I couldn't figure it out. And he goes, no, no, no. I know what it means. It means take the next flight because I was supposed to fly with my father to London to go to my cousin's wedding in London. So he said, no, it means take the next flight to London and stay with Mike, my cousin. So I basically got snook out the back door and I was out. And I was in London and I was trying to get him out of jail. And he was there probably for six months in horrific, horrific conditions. And they finally, they finally released him. I was, I was back in Canada working with our MPs in Canada to try and get him released. Um, but the unfortunate thing is that I have to say, I guess that my father and my ethics clashed. So I basically left and formed my own business because I didn't want to ever be in that situation ever again. It was really, really tough. So, And so all of that is in the book. What's the book called? The, it's all in the book. It's all in the book. It's called, the book is called Take That Leap, Risking It All for What Really Matters. So what really matters in life. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's on Amazon. I actually just finished the Audible version uh, in, in August. So it's available on Audible. So audiobook and paperback and on Kindle and all that stuff. So it's, yeah, it's doing way better than I've ever dreamed. I'm really just yeah, over the moon with the, <laughs> the results of it. Yeah. And I give, actually, I give all the proceeds that I bring in. That's everything. Uh, I give everything to uh, local charities that, or local and international charities that our family support. Yeah. So like Covenant House uh, here in Vancouver, probably in, in, in the UK too. I don't know where they work with at-risk youth, uh, their street kids and uh, yeah, various different charities. So everything that I make from speaking engagements to my book, I'll go to, you know, there's a list of charities on my website there that we donate everything to. And so what's the book about then? What's risking it all and what really matters? What's the... I wanted to write a book and I was encouraged to write a book about, uh, you know, my life's journey, my entrepreneurial journey and, and life journey, because that's what it is. It's not just the business, it's the life. And uh, I, there's so many books that are written on how to do this and tell you how to do things. I wanted to share experiences and have people, the reader, take whatever nuggets they can. And if they want to apply them to their business or their life, they can, if not. So, yeah, so that's that's what it is. So there's a lot of adventure in it, um, a lot of uh, international business, uh, you know, people getting thrown in jails and getting shot at in helicopters and things like that in different parts of the world, um, all the way down to, um, you know, what really gave me a big shake to get my act together, which was, um, you know, one of the things was getting a coach. So I was dragged into the entrepreneurs organization with this massive, by this massive 300 pound football player. And after a couple of years, I, um, or actually, no, actually fairly soon, I was encouraged to get a coach. I had a, a business coach because we were doing some transitions inside our business, but I was meeting with the business coach uh, the whole time and he, for breakfast, and he said, no, 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 Nigel, you need this other coach. And his name is Kevin Lawrence and he's been on your show. He's a great guy. So I've been with, I've been with Kevin for 15 years and, um, that was the best, the second best 
decision I ever made. The first thing was joining this peer group, which is the Entrepreneurs Organization. And the second is, was hiring on Kevin to really um, hold me accountable for what I wanted to do, not for what everybody else wanted to do, but for what I wanted to do in my life and my business and how to mold my business. So where are you at with your business? I mean, how, how long did it take to write the book? Did you take time out to write that? Yeah, it took, yeah, well, I, I'm dyslexic and I have ADD. So, um, it took me three years and, um, I have a, I, and I wrote, I wanted to write my own book. I didn't want somebody to write it for me. You can pay people to write books, but I said, no, I'm writing the whole thing. And I had a fantastic editor that I was working with, Shay Hayden, and she helps CEOs write their books of their lives. So that's what she does. That's her thing. And, um, so yeah, it took me three years Oh, so many stories that I, I was approached 2010. I was approached in 2010 to sell my business to a UK competitor, actually, at a, the Isle of Wight, just out off Southampton or in Portsmouth. I had agreed that I, you know, I didn't want to sell it. So I flew to New York to meet these guys. And they said that, you know, I thought they wanted a strategic alliance. But they came in and said, no, 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 we want to buy your company. And I'm like, well, we're not for sale. So I came back to Vancouver with my business partner. And um, then they kept coming after us and they said, okay, you know, we really want you guys. And so we, we agreed to sell the business. The deal was pretty much done. They'd paid a deposit. And um, I met a lady in, uh, in, a, in my class in Boston. I go to this class called the um, Gathering of Titans in Boston at MIT. And it's a spinoff of the Entrepreneurs Organization. And uh, one, one of the speakers came in. I, I was pretty much done at the time. I, I was like, oh, you know, I don't know what to do with my life and my business. And, and, uh, and she actually invited, this is another story. She, she invited us, our class to go deep into the Amazon rainforest with her because she works with the indigenous tribes of the Amazon to help preserve their way of life called the Ashwar. And I thought that was fascinating. I thought, you're kidding me. We can go and visit. And she goes, yes, we're the only group on the planet that has that's working together with these people. They came to us, said, hey, we need help from the outside world. So I thought, yeah, okay, I'm going to go. So I took my family and I told this lady, and her name was Lynn Twist, and she she mo- wrote an amazing book called The Soul of Money. She's been on Oprah Winfrey and, and many, but she's an amazing woman and an amazing speaker, Lynn Twist. And uh, so she took myself and I, and I said to her, I said, Lynn, you know, I'd like to bring my my kids and my family. And she goes, no, no, it's a, it's a CEO fundraising thing to bring awareness to this tribe. And I said, Lynn, you have to understand that the youth, I have this much bandwidth in my, my working days and my life. I've got this much. My kids have this much and they have social media and they have, so I said, they need to come and they need to see this, what's going on there. So she agreed. So we went deep into the Amazon, flew in and our whole family of five were in a tiny little Cessna, all crammed in with our bags. We all had to get weighed. Flew for about an hour and a half over nothing but untouched jungle. No human touch except for these this tribe. We landed on a dirt runway, which was lined with uh, yellow flowers and uh, as markers. And then we got in canoes and then we went and we spent time in a village with Yashwar. And we did ceremony. And I didn't know, I had no idea what we were going to do. So we did a ceremony. We did what's called ayahuasca, which is a mind, kind of a mind altering um, serum that they've been doing for millennia. And I had this, just this crazy, people talk about going to the Amazon and having visions. Well, I I actually did. I actually did. (laughs) And I think what happens is, is that this, the ayahuasca got deep into inside my conscience or my subconscious. 
And I would, cause I was toiling with selling the business or not selling the business. I, I wasn't quite sure, you know, did I do the right thing? Did I, did I sell the business for the right reason? And it was, the deal was done, but it wasn't done. And I saw this face of this, um, kind of this indigenous person kind of looking at me with this look of great responsibility. And it scared the crap out of me. And I was, I was like, oh my, my God. Like, and it just, it just had this really nice smile at first. And then it was a serious look of responsibility. And then it went back to this beautiful smile and all that. And then I went off on my journey for another few hours and woke up in a, in, in a palapa. But what it was trying to tell me was, Nigel, I, this is what I believe, my, it was my subconscious talking to me. It activated something in my subconscious. And it was basically saying, don't sell your business, Nigel. Keep your business. Use the platform that you formed for 30 years to do good in the world, whatever good is, whatever your good is. But don't sell it. Don't cash out. I mean, don't cash your business out and go sell t-shirts on the beach. <laughs> you, you, you've got so much more that you can do with it. And so that's what I did is I flew back home. I flew to London. I pulled the deal off the table. And then I ended up buying out my business partner and then um, bringing up a younger guy that had been with us for years and years and years. And, and basically he, he runs the whole organization for me. And now I'm at 30,000 feet and I kind of hover, hover in and hover out. And I actually, uh, and then I took a year off and I traveled with my family around the world. We went to 17 countries and off the beaten path, just backpacks. And we had three t-shirts, one pair of shorts, flip-flops. So in every every photograph in every country, we're wearing one of three t-shirts. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and how old were your kids when you did that? My middle son was 18. He just graduated from high school. My daughter was in, uh, should have been the ninth ninth grade. So we homeschooled her for a year. And our oldest son was in university, so he flew in and flew out. He met us in Indonesia, and then he met us in Argentina. It was the most incredible experience of my life, and I don't know why I didn't do it sooner. And people go, how did you do it? I said, anybody can do it. Living overseas is a lot cheaper than living in London or in Vancouver, believe me. So it's possible, but we just have, we put up these these walls, and it's all in our head. You know, we, we just say we can't do it. But And actually, Kevin Lawrence, my coach, it was the very last thing. I've been working with Kevin for quite a few years, and we've been able to set the business up to run without me, moved out some other CEOs that we brought in and got rid of them quicker than I, you know. And uh, the last thing on my list was take off for a year and travel with the family. I'm like, no, Kevin, like, that's not possible. That's People don't do that. He goes, what's well, on your list? That's the one thing that you really, really, really wanted. And I'm like, I know, but come on. And he's, and so my wife was in the, in the kitchen. I was on the phone with Kevin and he goes, does, does Reiko, my wife's uh, Japanese and it's Reiko. He said, does Reiko still want to do it? And I'm like, I don't know. He says, ask her. So I yell, Hey Reiko, do you still want to take off for your in travel? She says, yeah, of course. And Kevin's like, aha. Okay. So let's work with this. So it took us a few months, but I didn't plan anything. We we left and we just went as the, the wind took us. And it was absolutely the most incredible thing for myself and my kids. And my wife and I had always wanted, our, our main goal was to raise global citizens as our kids. And Well, and I think also lovely because the, I think the stat is when your kids finish high school and go to college or university, at that point, you've spent 95% of the time with them that you'll ever spend with them. And you... You got to do more of that great stuff. Well, I don't know if you ever had Jim Shills on your show. He has a um, he has a uh, thing called Eighteen Summers, 
And he basically says, you have 18 summers with your kids and you better well darn, you know, spend time with them in their their earlier life. Because, you know, what I found now, my kids are now, my oldest is 25. Devin, our middle one is 23. He's he's our actor. actor. He actually went to acting school in London while we were there during our trip. That's what he wanted to do. And I'm like, cool, man, go for it. And, uh, and our daughter's 19. But what we're finding now is that they're all off doing their thing and we don't have as much time with them. So Jim Shields is right. There's that 18 summers that we have with our kids. And, you know, it's, it's a very special time. And with entrepreneurs, what I find with entrepreneurs in, in all of the, I've been involved in all these. So I was in the entrepreneurs organization for 15 or 17 years. And I was in another group called Tiger 21 uh, for three or four years. Um, this gathering of Titans group and so many different groups, but I find that, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say, but I think I'm, well, it's a very, very, very high percentage of my classmates and all these different organizations that I've been in have had disastrous relationships with their families and divorce, multiple divorces. And I, I talk with them all the time and, and they say, man, the one thing, if I could have it back, I would want to spend more time with my family. My, the one thing that I've learned is that I would always, I mean, it was really hard, but if in, in a business crisis, I would still do, like during the BP Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, probably the biggest project that we were, we'd ever had, I had already booked this trip to the Amazon and I went to the Amazon, right? I was gone for two weeks. I knew that people would step up. When I left, I knew my number two was going to step up and they, they always do. But it's, it's our ego. We can't let go of our ego. We're indispensable. That's BS. So, you know, my thing is, is never sacrifice family for a business crisis because we're always in crisis. Every day's a crisis in business. I, I, lived, I lived for years and I, I, I call it the doorknob effect. When I arrive at my office, I would put my hand out. I would take a deep breath. I would touch the doorknob and I would turn it knowing that as soon as I stepped in, it was going to be a complete bee's nest and chaos. Everybody wanted me every, every single day for 20 plus years. If we can set ourselves up to, you know, get into that rhythm or that life rhythm, I call it, I know Kevin, you know, we talked about it for years, Kevin Lawrence. Um, we call it a life rhythm, not a life balance. Because life, you're sacrificing one for the other with balance. A life rhythm is a flow. You get into the flow. And being able to do your business, which is great, but spend time doing what you love and with your family is is the most incredible thing. And, and to take it up a notch higher, giving back or giving as a family is more powerful than anything. I find that, you know, giving a check uh, once a year for your conscience, that's great because you're helping out organizations. But to actually volunteer at a an old folks home or a soup kitchen or building houses in Mexico for the homeless or whatever it is, is great physically doing it, but taking your family and getting your kids involved. I don't think there's anything more powerful than that. Well, and you were telling me before we started recording, you were telling me you actually set up a charity with your kids on the back of your round the world. Yeah. 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 We, we set up a, um, a group that's called true beach, which is T R U B E A C H. So true beach, what it is, is we, we were very fortunate and we, we're, we're, we're water people. So I, you know, my, my company's AquaGuard, protecting water, the world's most precious resource is water. So we're surfers and scuba divers and things like that. So we were diving 
and surfing all over the world. It was just, it was like the endless summer film. You know, we had, we, that's what I wanted to do. I was like, I want to do the endless summer. You only had flip-flops, so you had to stay warm. You had to keep going to, <laughs> you had to, keep going to warm places. <laughs> that's right. But go- we did end up in Bhutan in the Himalayas with flip-flops and the guides that came to pick us up go, what are you guys doing? We're going on a trek. You got flip-flops. I'm like, yeah, I know. We Is there like a, <laughs> a, a second-hand climbing store we can buy? A, and we ended up buying a bunch of gear in a second-hand climbing shop in Bhutan. But I got so fed up. I, I watched all these old surf movies. You know, I've watched uh, Endless Summer and Endless Summer 2 and Step into Liquid, these classic surf films of all these beautiful surf spots. And we ended up going to a lot of them. But when it would rain, the oceans we, would become full of plastic and garbage. And I'd be paddling into a wave and my skegs would be caught and my son and daughter would be beside me. We couldn't catch a wave because of all the trash. So I got so fed up. It was the same thing. It was in Indonesia. It was in Brazil. So many places were like that. So we we started this thing called True Beach. So you can report on the true conditions of our beaches and oceans around the world to bring uh, awareness and hopefully change in in uh, governments and organizations and hotel organizations. And I have alliances with groups like Surf Rider Foundation, the Ocean Legacy, and various groups like that that we work with. And it's an app. It's an app. Uh, if you go on vacation um, and you go to a beach, you just download True Beach on your iPhone and you take a picture and do a review and just help spread awareness and hopefully change. So yeah, that's one of the things that we do. Because the hoteliers will be compelled to fix it if it's impacting their pocket. Exactly. It all comes down to affecting their pocket. And if one beach gets a five-star rating because their beach is cleaner than the next, well, people are going to go to the five-star and pay more so the other guys are going to want to keep their beaches clean and they're going to want to work with the governments to educate the people not to throw the garbage into the dry riverbeds. So when it rains, everything gets flushed out into the ocean. Ah, okay. That's what that is. Right. I see. That's what happens. Yeah. Wow. So Bhutan, was that, if you look back, was that your favorite place? What were your top three? <laughs> I knew were your top, you were going to ask what that. Were, what were your top three? It's really hard because as, as you know, Don, like you travel it and it's the, the place is a background. The people are what make places. And I just found every single where, every place we went, we went to 17 different countries. Go on. What were, where did, where, where did you go? What was you? Well, we started in Europe. We started in Europe to ease it in. So we started in um, Southern France with my cousin from London and we were down there hanging out, which is amazing. And then we we're in London for six weeks. So I had a little bit of business and I have family in London, which was wonderful. I love London. And uh, then we headed to Sevilla in Spain uh, for a month and a half, and then we ended up um, going up to Madrid, and then then so we eased it in in Europe, and then we headed over to the Middle East. We were in Dubai for a while, and then we were in uh, Indonesia, in Bali, and then uh, Lambangang, and all over Indonesia, and then we were in uh, Malaysia, which I'd done business before; and it was fabulous, and then uh, we were in Myanmar, uh, Burma, absolutely unbelievable, one of my favorite places on the planet. Uh, it's like, uh, remember the old Indiana Jones movies? It's like living in an Indiana Jones movie. Everything is, it's just raw. Everything was raw and the people are wonderful. Uh, it's, you know, a bit difficult with the government, but um, it was it was fantastic. The food was amazing. Uh, and then we were in Northern Thailand and then Bhutan, a friend of mine from my class in Boston again, uh, founded the first international uh like heritage festival or something of Bhutan. So we went there and then we spent a few weeks going all over Bhutan with some of his friends. And then we were in Japan because my wife's from Japan, tiny village in Japan, all over Japan, New York, and then down through, where do we go? Then we were in Brazil, 
uh, Rio de Janeiro, Buzios, all over Brazil. And then uh, Argentina, which is fabulous, up in the mountains. We want to do a bit of trekking, so we're up in the mountains in Mendoza and the wineries. Where do we go from? Then we were in Colombia, Cartagena, which was great, and south of Cartagena. And then Cuba, which was, we were there for about a month in Cuba. Uh, I have people, work. we work in Cuba, so I had some, uh, I did a little bit of work there, and then uh it was just amazing, amazing place. And then through Mexico City and then back to Vancouver. So we were gone for a year. It was it was it was just a dream. You know, you know, the one thing that I really my wife and I agree that we really enjoyed the most was we would get up in the morning and we would go down to a coffee shop. We say we we're in Italy or Spain or so, we'd go down to a coffee shop and we would sit for maybe three hours and just chat and watch people go by. Nothing gets better than that. We had no agenda and we'd watch the old gentlemen that would come in early in the morning and they would sit, they would meet with the older gentlemen, mostly older gentlemen, and they would be there two hours chatting with their buddies and then they would slowly get up and leave. Just that calmness and the, it was absolutely wonderful. So you've got somebody running the business. You've been around the world for a year with your kids. You've written a book. You don't need to sell the business, so you've probably got no plans to retire anytime soon. No, no, but no. But you must be planning another thing. I just recorded my book, and then people are poking me to write another one. And I'm like, oh, come on. I'm like, come on. And they're like, no, 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 sir, you have to write another one. I told my wife that the other day, and she, she's like, you're kidding. And I'm like, well, no, <laughs> I've been poked. So we also formed another uh, group called giftaddd.com, which, uh, which is with Kevin Lawrence, my coach, um, which you've, you've interviewed, and then Sue, Sue Hollis, who also you've interviewed. <clears throat> She's Aussie. And um, yeah, what it is, is we're all, everybody's got ADD. I'm dyslexic and ADD. I have ADD. So what giftaddd.com is, is it, uh, it's a group or an organization that dispels the myth that dyslexia and ADD is a curse but it's actually a gift. And that's what we want to show the world. And if you, if you talk to Kevin, if you talk to Sue, if you talk to any of the people in all of these groups that I belong to, and, if, and, and your listeners are entrepreneurs, high, high, high percentage of entrepreneurs have ADD or are dyslexic. But we actually have a gift because we're able to see things that other people don't see. We just don't realize it. So what our, what our organization, giftadd.com, is is um, really helping the kids. The hardest time in our lives is when we're in high school. When we're 16 and, we, and we're having a hard time in school and we don't know why we think we're dumb. I got kicked out of the British Columbia Institute of Technology after the first term. And I begged the dean to, to let me back in. But he said, yeah, you can come back in if you take all the day classes you failed and all at night school and a full day load. And I'm like, sign me up. I, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> yeah, but... The beauty of that is what entrepreneurs do is we surround ourselves with really good people. And the only way I got out of the British Columbia Institute of Technology is because I had a lot of friends help me get through. And the same thing with my business. I've been able to have really, really good people around me. And now I've got this amazing fellow that's been working with us since he was 18 years old, hands-on guy, but he knows everything about my business. And he's 40 and he's running everything. And it gives me, and when I had a, I had a partner and we ended up buying him out and the agreement was, is that I have a one page plan 
with this new partner. I said, this is what I will do now, and this is what I won't do now. And that was eight years ago. We signed a, just a one-pager, and that's been like that ever since. So I only do what I love to do. Fantastic. Which is all enabled by the fact you didn't sell your business. Exactly. Exactly. So if you could go back in time, knowing one thing that you know now, is there somewhere you'd go? Is there some piece of knowledge you'd take back with you in time? Yeah, I, I would have started a lot earlier because this is probably when I was in my 40s. I, I think that, you know, I, I joined the Entrepreneurs Organization just before I was probably 40. I was probably 38 or something. So I would have joined an organization like that much earlier and I would have got a coach a lot earlier. The coaching thing for me is key. And, you know, people ask me, you know, well, yeah, you got a coach, but it's expensive. I'm like, well, it can be, but you pay for what you get. Don't buy a cheap coach. <laughs> That's one thing. I'd rather pay more. I know Kevin, Kevin, the first meeting I had, he said, you know, it was, you know, write me a check for whatever it was. It was, it was a lot at that time for me. And I wrote it. He says, if after the first day you're not happy, you can just tear it up. So 15 years later, I'm still working with him. You know, we're, we're now on quarterlies. We, we used to meet monthly with monthly face-to-face and then we would have a um a call once a month and then now i'm on quarterlies does he coach the guy who runs the business as well or just just you still uh he they ha- he has done sessions with our executive team yeah and what um other than your own book which is take the leap take that leap risking it all for what really matters that's the really matters part is the is the thing other than that what other books would you recommend or have you have touched you along the way man i, I know way back you know, the entrepreneur's Bible was pretty much the E-Myth by Michael Gerber, which is now E-Myth Revisited, you know, which was, you know, setting your business up in the systems and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Although he sets it up to sell where I'm like set it up to run without you so you can step out, don't sell it. I'm kind of more on that don't sell. Uh, good to great would be Jim Collins. Um, that was really, really good. You know, the hedgehog and hedgehog get the right people on the bus get the right people in the right seats on the bus and get the right guy driving the bus. Even that little piece there has just been so powerful to me. And then Kevin's book, you know, Your Oxygen Mask First, Kevin Lawrence, which is, it's a new one, just just came out. And I guess Vern's book, uh, Scaling Up, Vern Harnish. Vern's been great. I mean, Vern uh, has been a mentor to all of us at our, at our programs at MIT for years and years and years. And I have a lot of respect for Vern over the years. So, yeah. That's brilliant. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today and hear about your story and uh, get some hints and tips for the people who listen to the show. Yeah, no, thanks, Tom. I really, I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast, and there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. 
share your questions and comments and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>